Hello, I'm Byron Reese with Kickohm. From ultra-low power devices using microcontrollers to complex applications using dedicated machine learning processors, AI runs on ARM. The AI revolution will transform every aspect of our future driven by disruptors like ARM and the bright minds featured on this Voices in AI podcast. Enjoy! This is Voices in AI brought to you by Gigaom. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Carolina Gaijagigios. She's an expert in machine learning and computer vision. She did her undergrad work in Chile and has a master's and PhD in computer science from UC San Diego. And she's presently a machine learning engineer at Thumbtack. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's start at the very beginning with definitions. What exactly is artificial about artificial intelligence? Well, um, I, I read somewhere that uh, artificial intelligence is basically, you know, uh, trying to make machines think, um, which is very sci-fi, I think. Um, but what, is, what I'm trying to say is here is that we're trying to automate a lot of different tasks that humans do. And um, we have done that before in the Industrial Re- Revolution, but now we're trying to do it with computers and with interfaces that look more human-like. Uh, we also have robots that also have you know, computers inside. And so I think that's more of the artificial part. Um, um, the intelligence, we'll see how intelligence, these machines will, com- will become um, you know, on time. Do you do you think the machine, so Alan Turing asked the question, can a machine think? And do you think a machine can think or will a machine be able to think? Mm, I think we're really far from that. Uh, the brain is a really, really complex thing. Um, I think that we can approximate the thinking of a machine to be able to follow certain rules or learn patterns that seem more like common sense. Uh, but at the end of the day, it won't think uh, autonomously, I think. Um, we're really far from that. And so that's a reasonable, and, and I, I want to get into computer vision here in just a minute, yeah. but I'm, I'm really fascinated by this because mm-hmm. that's a pretty low bar because if you say it's, it's using machines to do things people do, then um, you know, mm-hmm. a, calcul- a calculator is an artificial intelligence in that view. Would you, would you agree with that? Well, not really because... A calculator is just executing uh, commands. But isn't that and, what a computer program does? Yeah, it does. But I will say that in machine learning, um, a computer can have, uh, you don't need to program those rules. Um, the computer will, or the program will infer the rules by seeing data. Um, so you don't, you're not explicitly uh, you know, writing down the program, uh, the rules in that program. And that's what makes it uh, interesting. It makes it different from a calculator. So humans uh, do something really kind of cool. You show a human a, an object like a little statue of some figure, and then you show them 100 pictures, and they can tell where that figure is, if, even if it's upside down, if it's underwater, if the lighting changes, if they only see half of it, what, 
we, we're really far away from being able to do that with the machine, correct? Mm-hmm. And what, I think, what, what, go ahead. Well, we're, depends. It's always, I think, that, that there is, depends. We're, 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 we can do very well now uh, in certain conditions, but we are very far from, not, I'm not saying super far, but we're far from, from doing it like when you don't have all the information, I would say. And what do you think humans are doing that, like, how do humans do that? Is it that we're really good at transfer learning or what do you think we're doing? Well, yes, transfer learning, but also a lot about context. Um, I think that the brain is able to store so many different connections. I mean, millions and millions of connections. It has so much experience and that goes, that information goes into recognizing uh, objects um, that is very implicit. Um, a person cannot recognize something they've never seen before. Um, so, but, but if that person has the context about what it should be, it will be able to, to find it. So I think that's the, that's the main, main point. So if, if I took you into a museum gallery and there was a giant wall and there were 200 paintings on it, they were all, um, they were all um, well-known paintings, like, you know, and they're all, mm-hmm. they're all realistic and all of that. And I hang one of them upside down. A, a human notices that pretty quickly. Yeah. But a, but a computer doesn't. A computer uses the same kind of laborious algorithm to try to figure out which painting is upside down. But a human just, what do you think's going on there? Um, I think that uh, there what's going on uh, is probably the fact that we have context about what you know, we usually face, you know, we usually see uh, paintings that are, you know, straight that, you know, they point up. Uh, so we are really, we are really quick to uh, identify when things are not the way we expect them to be. And a computer doesn't have that, uh, that knowledge. So they start from like a clear slate. But what would, what would giving them that kind of context look like? I mean, if I, if I just said, hey, here's 100,000 paintings and they're all right side up. Now, quick, glance at that wall and tell me which one's upside down. Um, the, the computer wouldn't necessarily be able to do it right away, would it? Like, what kind of context do we have in that? that what, what paintings look like right side up or what reality looks like right side up? Or what do you think? Well, if it's an imp- like an impressionist, not if it's, it's like yeah, if there is objects on that painting, you probably also the, the computer pro- uh, probably will also uh, will be able to say that it's upside down. Now, if that is a very modern piece, I don't think a human could also figure out if it's upside down or not. And I think that's where the the, the actual point of 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 that will actually, you know. That's the, I think that's the key of the problem. So like a, a, person would, a person would not know that, yeah, if it's basically like a bunch of colors, you, like you, I wouldn't be able to say if that's like upside down. But if there is a, the painting of a lady, you know, like a face of a, a woman, I will actually, I will be very 
quick to spot that that's that painting is upside down and i think a computer also could do that because the computer you can train a computer to identify faces when that face is upside down you know it will be able to say that too you know it's interesting because if you if if you were an artist and you drew uh, fantastic landscapes in science fiction worlds you mm-hmm. people there would be a and you show people different ones, somebody could point at something and say, that's not very realistic, but that one is. Mm-hmm. When in reality, of course, they're alien planets. That, and, and, and it's because we have a really deep knowledge about things like with the shape of biological forms and the effect of gravity on just this really intuitive level of what looks right and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. How, yeah. would, how will we ever, how would, what's the, what are the steps you go through to get a computer to have just that kind of natural understanding of reality? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that um, as part of recognizing objects, let's say that's our main main task, we, we try to also give more information about how these objects um, are presented in reality. So um, you, can, you can have algorithms that can code information about the spatial information of objects. Let's say, you know, usually you're gonna find, you know, the sky above, the grass is down below. You won't find, you know, usually you won't find a, a car on top of a building. And all that. so you, you can actually train an algorithm that can, surface those patterns um, and then when you show them something that is different um, either is going to make the wrong i mean it's going to make those assumptions and you know one of the, the, the um, one of the outcomes is that you might not recognize uh, objects correctly because those objects are not in the context that the you know that the, the algorithm was trained on. And do you think that's what humans are doing, that we just had this knowledge base? Because I could so totally imagine somebody looking at these alien landscape paintings mm-hmm. and saying, that one doesn't look right. And then they say, well, why doesn't it look right? And it's like, I don't know, it just doesn't look right. And that there's some much deeper level that, that humans are able to understand things that wouldn't necessarily be ex- able to be explicitly programmed. Or is that not the case? Um, I think if you have enough, I think that there is a belief that in, in machine learning and now especially, especially with deep learning is that you have enough data, like seeing millions and millions of examples, those patterns will surface. You don't have to explicitly put them there. Um, and then, you know, those images, let's say we're doing computer vision, will encode those rules, but you're always going to see, um, you know, cars, the, you know, the size of a car and the size of a person that you, you know, are mostly around the same, even though you see them, you know, at different distances. Um, so you, you can, um, I know that as humans, we are able to, you know, because we have that experience, we, we have so much information we, we can make those claims when we see something that seems odd. Um, at the same time, uh, we can have algorithms that 
if you have enough data uh, to get those patterns uh, surfaced, they, they could also be able to spot that. And I think that um, it's happening more and more uh, in areas like uh, medicine um, when you want to find cancer. Um, so they're trying to leverage those algorithms to be able to rec detect those anomalies. How much do you think about biology and how humans recognize things when you're, when you're considering how to build a system that recognizes things? Are they, are they close analogs or, or is it just trivia that we both happen to recognize things, but we're going to do it in such radically different ways? There's not really much we can learn from the brain. This is a very hot topic, I say, in the community. Um, there are definitely uh, a lot of uh, machine learning that is inspired by, you know, the brain or bio biology. And so they're trying to build architectures that, that simulate the way that the brain will work or the, the eyes will, you know, process information. Um, I think that they do that in order to understand how the brain works in order to do the other way around, which is, you know, create algorithms that emulate the brain, because I think that would be extremely hard to do. Um, so when I build machine learning systems, either computer vision or just generic machine learning systems, I usually am not inspired by biology because um, I'm, I'm usually trying to focus on a very specific task. Um, and if I were to inspire by the brain, I mean, I will have to take into account a lot of different things um, into my algorithm, which is sometimes it just wants to do something still very smart, but very focused. Um, and if, uh, and the brain actually tries to take into account a lot of different inputs. Um, so that's how I, I usually approach um, the, wor the work I do. Humans have a lot of cognitive biases. So we have ways that our brain doesn't work. Um, it appears to, to have these bugs in it. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, we oversee patterns, right? We, I guess we overfit. Mm -hmm. uh, we, you, you can look up in a cloud and you see a dog. And, and yep. the thesis goes that in, in a long time ago, it was far better to mistake um, a rock for a bear and run away mm -hmm. than to mistake the bear for the rock and get eaten. Do you think that when we build computer systems that can recognize objects, are they going to have our cognitive biases because we're coding them? Are they going to have their own ones that we can't really predict? Or, or will they be kind of free of bias because they're just trained off the data? Um, I think it depends. Uh, basically, uh, I think it only depends on how you're going to build that system. Like if you do it by being inspired by the brain, um, you might actually be, be able to put your own bias against it because you might say, well, you know, this is a rock and this is a bear and, you know, bears and rocks, you know, show up together, but, you know, in certain occasions and you might actually be able to, to, to put your own bias on it. But now if you let the data 
sort of speaks by itself by showing examples to algorithms. Um, then the, the, the machine or the computer will just make their own judgment about, about that without any bias. Well, you can always bias the data as well. So I think that's, that's a, a different problem. But if let's say we just take all the images in the world where all the objects appear, then uh, we, we usually will pick up a lot of a very, very general patterns. And if usually uh, rocks look like bears, then they might, they might make those um, mistakes pretty, quick, uh, pretty easy. Yeah, I guess the challenge is that every photograph is an editorial decision of, of what to photograph. And so yeah. every photograph is reflects a human's bias. So even if mm -hmm. you had 100 million photos, you're still instantiating some kind of bias. Yes. Um, so, you know, people have this ability that we, we change focus. And, you know, you look at something and then a bear walks in the room and you're like, oh my gosh, a bear walked in the room. And then somebody yells fire, fire, and you turn over to see where the fire is. So we're always like switching from thing to thing. And that seems to be a feature associated with our consciousness that it allows us to switch. Does that, does that, does the fact that the computer is not embodied, that it doesn't have a form and it doesn't have consciousness, is that an inherent limitation to, to what it's going to be able to see and recognize? Um, yeah, I mean, yes, I, I think so. I mean, like once again, if, if the computer haven't seen or if it doesn't have any extra sensors, uh, it will be pretty, you know, he wouldn't be even realize what's, what's going on apart from the tasks that's been, that is actually executing. So, but you know, the, let's say that computer has, it's not just, it has inputs from, you know, it has a camera. It also has, you know, a tactile device and, and many other things. Then you're starting to enable a little bit more um, context to that, to that computer or that program. And, you know, if you, I mean, if, if those, if those um, events occur, you know, once in a while, then it will be able to, to, to react or say something about it. Do you know any projects where, because if you think about it, photographs that we use generally are, are the visible spectrum of light that humans are able to see, but that's just mm -hmm. this tiny fraction. Are, yeah. there, are there pattern recognition or image recognition efforts underway that are using a full spectrum of light and color? Full spectrum of light and color. So that uh, show you, infrared, ultraviolet. Yes. That, that yeah, the training definitely. did. What is that? Yes. What, can do, can you give like an example of that? that I find that fascinating. Well, uh, a very good example is uh, self-driving cars. Uh, they have infrared cameras. Um, they could potentially give you, uh, you know, an idea of there is there is a body there, right? There is there is something there that is not unanimated, so you don't hit it <laughs> when you're driving. So that definitely. Um, they are not just photographs, but for MRIs, uh, you know, all medical uh, images, imaging, basically, you, you go over that. 
you use all that information that you can get. So talk to us, uh, our audience is familiar, you know, broadly with machine learning, but can mm -hmm. you talk a little more specifically about how, I mean, conceptually, here's a million photos of a cat, learn what a cat looks like and try to find the cat in these photos. Yeah. Like, but how, like, peel that onion back one layer. How does that actually work, especially in, in like a neural net situation? Um, yeah, so you basically um, tell the computer, you know, there is a cat in here. At, at, at every single image, you're saying there is a cat in here. Sometimes you even um, label the contours of, of a, or the contours of a cat, or even maybe like just a rectangle around it to, to differentiate it between, uh, uh, between the actual foreground and background. Um, what the computer is gonna do at the first level is going to um, do very low level operations, which means it's gonna start finding edges, uh, you know, like uh, connected components and like very, very at the very low granular uh, level so it starts finding patterns at that at that level basically that's the first stage and depending on how deep let's say if it's a neural network depending how deep the deep the neural network is uh, the higher uh, level this the higher the granularity of these patterns they start getting more and more so the representation of a cat starts from you know very low level until you start getting things like you know you know paws and you know e ears and eyes and until you actually get to what it is um a full cat at the end of of the of you know of the layers of this neural network um and that's where the layers of the the neural network start uh, encoding uh, and so they, when you have a new picture where there's not a cat, maybe there is a person, it's gonna try to find those patterns, right? And it's gonna be able to say, well, in this area of this image, there's no cat because I don't, I don't see all those patterns coming up uh, the way I see it when you know a cat is present. And what are the what are the inherent limitations of that approach? Is or is that the be all and end all of of image recognition? Give it enough images, it will be able to figure out how to recognize them almost flawlessly. Well, the, yeah. So the limit there are always limitations. I mean, the, they're obviously the objects are easier to recognize than others. Um, like now we have done like amazing progress on even recognizing different types of dogs and different types of cats, which is amazing. But they're always they're always constrained to lightning conditions. You know, the quality of the image. Um, to to things that uh, you know, some some dogs can look like cats, um, so we can't do anything about that. Um, those are we always have constraints. I think that algorithms are not perfect, but depending on what we are trying to use them for, they can get very accurate. So the same techniques are used not just for training for images, but making credit decisions or hiring decisions or uh, identifying illnesses. It's all mm -hmm. the basic same approach, correct? 
Yes. What do you think of the efforts? So in, in Europe, um, there's, there's being considered, uh, you know, you have a right to know why the algorithm suggested what it is. How do you reconcile that, that people, you know, you, you have been denied uh, mm -hmm. your mortgage application and then the person says why, and then you say, the, the, the neural net said so, and then it's like, well, why did it say so? And it's like, well, that's a pretty hard question to answer. What do you, how do you solve that? Or how do you balance that? Because as we get better with neural nets, they're only going to get more obfuscated and convoluted and, and, and nuanced, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that the harder the problem, um, like let's say in the case of computer vision, is really hard to to say what are the things that are triggering certain outcome. Um, but uh, luckily, there are still things that are, there's still, you can still do, you know, come up with algorithms that they're simpler to, uh, to train, but also simpler to, to figure out what's, what are the main features that are triggering certain outcome. And then you'll be able to say to that person, you know, if you, you know, pay your credit cards, then you're actually, your score will improve and we'll be able to give you a mortgage. Um, but that, I think that's the trade-off, right? Like depending on the task, I think it's always task dependent. Um, there is a lot of hype with, with deep learning and neural networks. Um, I, sometimes you just need a, a little bit more simpler algorithms to, to to, that as they're still very accurate, but they, can, they can actually give you insights about your, you know, your predictions and also the data that you're looking at. Um, and then you can actually build a better product. Um, if your, if your, if your aim is to be extremely complete or, you know, try to, um, solve a task that is very difficult, then you're going to have to deal with the fact that, you know, there are a lot of things you won't know about the data and, and also why that the outcome of that of algorithm uh, came, came about. Pedro Domingos wrote a book called The Master Algorithm, where he suggested, you know, he says there's five different tribes, the way he kind of divides the world up. You have your symbolists and you have your Bayesians and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, and he posits that there must exist a master algorithm, a single general purpose algorithm that would be able to solve all wide range of problems, in theory, all problems that are, that are solvable that way. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think such a thing exists? Um, I don't think it exists now. Um, you know, given the fact that deep learning has been extremely useful across different type of tasks, uh, going from computer vision to even like music or, you know, out, you know, signal processing and things like that. Um, there might be once an algorithm that can help with a lot of different, you know, tasks, like a master algorithm, if you want to call it like that. But there still needs, it, it will always be um, in some way modified so to fit the actual problem that you want. I don't, I don't, um, because of the fact that 
these algorithms are very complex. Sometimes you, you actually need to know why the outcome is the outcome that you're getting. Um, so yes, I think that algorithm might you know, exist at some point. I don't think it has exist now. Deep learning maybe is one of the frameworks because it's not an algorithm, but it's more like a framework or an architecture that is helping to, to be able to accurate, accurately pre make predictions in different areas. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, we want to know why, because it will affect uh, a lot of different problems that, you know, medicine or, you know, users, uh, people at the end of the day. Um, you know, one, one argument for the existence of such a thing and that it, that it may not be very much code is, is human DNA, which is, of course, the instruction set to build an, a general intelligence. Mm -hmm. And the part of the DNA that that is that makes you different than creatures that aren't intelligent is very tiny. Intelligent is very tiny, and so the argument goes that that somehow a very little bit of code gives the instructions to build us, and we're intelligent, and therefore it may be that there may be an analog in the computer world, just a small amount of code that can build something as as, as versatile as a human. What do, what do you think of that analogy? Uh, yeah, that's mind blowing. <laughs> that would be really cool if that happened, but at the same time, very scary. Um, yeah, and, and I never, I never really thought about uh, about that before. Do you think we're going to build uh, an artificial general intelligence? Will we build a computer as smart and versatile as a human? Um, you know. Personally, I think that this is a very personal uh, answer. You know, humans are social beings. And the only way that this could happen is that, you know, we're alone. And we need something like a human to be with us. Um, hopefully, we're very far from that future. Uh, but in the, in, the actual, in the actual present, um, I don't think that's, that's something that we, we aim to. I think it's also more about like figuring out humanity, you know, by itself, like understanding why we come to be the way we are, why, why people are violent, why people are peaceful, why people are happy or why people are sad. Um, and that's the best way of understanding that, like basically reconstructing a human brain and maybe extending that brain to have you know arms and become a robot right but i don't think it will be the the actual goal it's more like the way to understand humanity i also i don't think it will be a way of of um executing tasks uh, we always see in the you know in sci-fi movies that robots sort of they do things that humans don't want to do, but they won't be like humanoids. They will just you know there is a you know I was looking to buy a Roomba yesterday, and that could possibly be a robot that is cleaning you know it's, it's trying to do something that I don't want to do, but I don't consider it as being uh, you know artificial intelligence or um, and a smart being. 
So I think that that's, um, is, is, it is in some way possible, but I don't think as, as an end to build something like a human. Certainly not for a, a lot of things, but in some parts of the world, that is a real widespread goal. The idea being that you, where places where you have aging populations and you mm -hmm. have lonely people and yep. you want robot companions that have faces that, rec that you recognize and that display emotions and can, can, can listen to your stories, chuckle at your jokes, recognize your jokes, all of that. So do you think that's, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? And so in those cases, they are trying to build artificial humans, aren't, aren't some people? Uh, but then won't be complete humans, right? They will be machines that they're very good at solving certain tasks, which is recognizing your voice, you know, um, recognizing that you're saying a joke or like being able to say things that make you feel better. But I, I don't think that they are artificial humans because that's a, a very, comp very, complex thing you know that that robot that is you know helping uh, a senior person to to you know for that person not to be alone um it won't be able to you know do other very very you know much more complex uh, tasks that uh, a human can do so i think it's, it's all about being like being very specific to 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 solve very specific tasks and i think robots in in japan they're they're doing that i mean we have a you know smart assistants right and they're very good at understanding why you what you're trying to say so they can execute a command but i i don't i don't think about them as another human that is trying is that is trying to understand me or or uh, know actually about who I am. You know, it's funny because um, I don't know if you saw Tom Hanks movie years ago called Castaway, but his only <laughs> companion is, you know, this, this soccer ball that, yeah, he named Wilson. And then there's yeah. a point where Wilson's floating off and he's like, Wilson, you know, so, you know, and he risks his life to save Wilson. And then mm -hmm. you look at how attached people get to, to their pets and their animals and, mm -hmm. um, and so you can imagine if you just kind of straight line graph that to what they might, how people might feel towards robots that really do look and act human. It's, um, it's, it's undoubtable that people will develop strong emotions for them. Yes, I agree with that. So what, you know, it's interesting. You're talking about that we have these digital assistants and, mm -hmm. and, and some vendors choose to name them. So you have Apple has Siri, um, Amazon has Alexa, Microsoft has Cortana, but Google, interestingly, doesn't personify theirs. It's the Google Assistant. Mm -hmm. um, what do you what, what do you think? And not necessarily those specific four cases, but why do you think sometimes they're personified and sometimes they aren't? Like, what does that say about us or them or how we want to interact with them or something like that? Yeah, it's very interesting. But because I have a I have a, a baby, my son sometimes with me and I sometimes ask Alexa to put, you know, to play some music when we are together. Um, it definitely makes it, having a name makes it feel like it's just part of your family and probably my son will wonder who this Alexa person is that I'm always asking to play some like 80s pop music. 
Um, but um, it definitely makes you feel that is not awkward, that is not that, you know, your, inter your interaction with a machine is uh, the experience is smooth and something that is not, um, yeah, it's just not an execution, right? It's, it's part of your environment. Uh, I think that's what they, uh, you know, these companies are going for when they name, they put an actual, a real name. It's not a, a very common person's name, but still a name that you could say, that, you know, Alexa probably has, you know, a female voice because that's sort of like the gender they're, they're aiming to, to represent. Uh, with respect to Google, um, I think Google maybe Google wants to see it in a more, you know, task-driven way. Um, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. They could be you many know, I, things. I think that Alexa may have come, um, I may have read that, uh, in addition to having the hard X, which makes it, uh, you know, sound distinctive. It's, a, mm -hmm. it's an oblique reference to the Library of Alexandria way back in, in, ancient, in ancient times. Um, I find myself, because I, I have all of the devices, because, I, you know, I kind of <laughs> figure, but whenever my alarm goes off, when I'm like, Alexa, set me a five-minute timer, which luckily it didn't hear me. Uh, mm -hmm. But when the timer goes off, I go, Alexa, stop. And it, it, it still feels uh, rude to me. It still feels like I don't talk to people that way, and, yeah. and, and therefore it, it, it's jarring to me. And so in a way, um, I prefer... Uh, not having it personified because I don't have that kind of conflict. Do you think that's, but, but what you just said about your child, that they may not grow up having any of those sorts of, you know, of mixed minds about these things. What do you think? Um, yeah. So I think that it's, it's true. Like I, sometimes I feel the same way like you do when, um, you know, you say stop and it feels like a very commanding way. Um, I don't know the next generation. I mean, the next generation is that you have iPads and, you know, computers are like an old thing almost, right? It's all about new interfaces. Um, it definitely is going to shape the way that people communicate with machines and, uh, in, and products. Um, it's very, yeah, it's, it's hard for me to kind of, you know, know what's, how will that be? But it's going to be very, very natural uh, the way that interactions will come with websites, products, you know, gadgets, uh, things like that. Um, yeah, I think that the fact that Google is still like the Google Assistant also has to do with the fact that when you're in a conversation, you, you know, you don't, don't say Google a lot, right? <laughs> uh, so then you won't trigger those, those, those devices to be listening all the time, which is another problem. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I always think about the fact that what's the next generation is going to, you know, behave or how, how is gonna, the experience going to be for them to grow up with, this, with these devices. The funny thing is, of course, because Google has become a, you know, a, a verb, 
Um, mm -hmm. You could imagine a future in 100 years or 200 years when the company no longer exists, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we still use the word and people are like, I wonder why we say Google it. Like, where did that come from? Um, because it, it may just be. Um, so do you think a computer, and, and, and this is uh, in a sense a personal question, do you think a computer can ever feel anything? So th there's a difference between, you know, you can put a sensor on a computer and uh, that detects temperature and you can mm -hmm. program the computer to play a wave file of its of a person screaming if it ever hits 500 degrees but that's a different thing than actually feeling pain do you think it's mm -hmm. possible for a machine to feel or is that something that's purely biologic or purely related to life or some other aspect of us yeah i i think that it the the feeling you know, the, uh, for a human to be able to feel something, that aspect of, of humanity as such a complex thing. We know from biology that it's mostly our nerves that, you know, perceiving things in case of pain, you know, you know, they're perceiving things and that's sending that signal to the brain. And the brain is, is trying to um, interpret that those, you know, that information into something. Um, if you could, if you want to be very analytical about it, then you could possibly do have a, 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 a computer that feels pain, right? Like you just put, like you said, some, some, something that can give input to the computer and then goes to the main to the processor and the processor will infer a rule and will say this is pain. I don't think that can they can do it in the way that we as humans perceive it. It's such a complex thing that you that well, you, in, sorry? But in the end we have a self. We have a, a self that experiences the world. Yes. And and, and pain and for are, well, yes. and can, can a computer have a, a self and can a computer therefore experience the world? as opposed to just coldly sense it? Uh, I, I, I think it's really hard. I think unless you can build a computer with, with, you know, with, self, with cells and with things that are more common to, to a human, uh, which will be a very interesting <laughs> thing. Um, I, I, I personally, I don't think that's possible because uh, even pain, like we're talking about, is very different for everyone because it's mostly it's mostly given by the experiences right and uh, a computer can store a lot of information but is you know there's much more than that signal is is just the way that interpreting that data is is what makes humans so interesting you know, humans, we have, we have brains and our brains, you know, are, 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 do all the things, but we also have a theory of, of something called a mind, which, uh, mm -hmm. you know, are you out of your mind? Um, and that's where we get creativity and that's all of these things. And, and I guess we think of the mind as all the stuff that we don't really understand how, how just a bunch of neurons can do, like, mm -hmm. you know, creativity, emotions and all of that. Do you, do you think, and, and in that movie, I, Robot. Um, when Spooner, the, the Will Smith character, is talking to Sonny the robot, uh, he says, you know, can you paint a painting? Can you write a symphony? Of course, Sonny says, well, can you? But the point being that all of those things are things we associate with the mind. 
Do you think computers will ever be able to really um, write beautiful symphonies and, and write novels and best-selling and blockbuster movies and all of that? And if so, is machine learning a path to that? Like, how would you ever get enough movie scripts or even books or even stories to train it to? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I actually read that there is a movie that was written by a machine learning algorithm and they are the script actually and they they made a movie out of it um now is it good i don't know <laughs> so this is definitely possible i think that per se uh computers cannot be creative they're always going to be uh, this is my experience that they're basically looking at patterns of things that people find um that is uh, you know, funny or there is exciting or, you know, makes them feel things. And you can tell, um, you can say this song, you know, is very pleasing because it's very slow and romantic and relaxing. And then a computer could just take those, all those songs that are tagged that way and come up with a new song that has those specific patterns that make that song relaxing or, or pleasing, right? Um, and you could say, yes, they are being creative because it's some, they created something new from something old, right? From patterns, from previous examples. Um, so in that case, it's happening already or a lot of people are trying to make it happen. Now, coming out of the... You could also argue that Artists are the same way, you know, they, they have people, they look up, they look up, they have their, you know, their idols and they somehow, you know, are going to try to take those things they like from those, um, from their heroes and in, incorporate them in their own work. Uh, and then, you know, they become creative and they have their own creations and their own art. So, a computer can actually do the same process. Um, I think humans are able to capture even more than a computer could ever capture. Um, because a human is doing something for other humans. So they can actually understand what the things are mo that, that move people or make people you know, feel sad or happy. Uh, computers could also just catch the patterns that in, you know, for certain people, for certain data that they have, um, produces those 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 emotions, but they will never feel those emotions like humans do. You know, there's a lot of fear wrapped up in artificial intelligence, machine learning, with regard mm -hmm. to automation, and mm -hmm. and just there there are three broad um, beliefs. One is that uh, we're going to soon enter a period where there are people without enough education or training to do certain jobs and you're gonna have kind of the permanent Great Depression of 20, 25% unemployment. Another group of people believes eventually the machines can do everything a person can do. Like we're all, you mm. know, they're all out of work. And then there's a group of people who say, look, every time we get new technology, even things as fundamental as electricity and steam and replace animals with machines, unemployment never goes up. People just use these new technologies to increase uh, their productivity and therefore their standard of living. 
which of those three camps or a fourth one uh, do you find yourself sympathetic to? I think definitely the third one. I, I agree. Um, you know, like a, a really good example, my, my dad studied uh, technical drafting for, you know, architecture and computers, you know, then there was the, you know, programs that did that and he did not have a job, right? He did it by hand and then computers could do it easily. Um, but then, you know, he decided that he was really good at sales and, you know, that's where his, his career uh, started develop, uh, to develop because, you know, you need to be personable, you need to be able to, um, talk to people, engage them, you know, sell them things, right? So I think that in general, we are going to make people uh, develop new skills they never thought they had. Um, you know, we're going to make them more efficient. Uh, for example, at Thumbtack, we're, we're empowering professionals to, to do the things that they're really good at. And, you know, me personally is helping them through machine learning to optimize, you know, processes so they can be more, uh, they can be just focused on the things they love doing. Right. So I'm always, you know, very, um, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't really like the fact that people say that, you know, AI or machine learning will take people's jobs. I think that, is we have to see it as, as a new wave of like, let's optimize processes that will make us, that will actually give us more time to, to, to spend with our families or, or uh, develop skills that we always thought that would be interesting or that would actually things that we love to do and we can make a, a job out of it. We can support our families by doing the things that we love instead of, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, be stuck in an office doing things that are super automatic that you don't put your heart or your, even your, your mind to it. Uh, let's leave that to, to machines to automate it. And let's just, you know, do something that, you know, makes our life better. You mentioned uh, Thumbtack, uh, yeah. where you, you head up um, machine learning. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What excited you about that? What the mission of the company is for people who aren't familiar with it and kind of where you're at in your, in your life cycle? Yeah. So Thumbtack is, is a marketplace where uh, people like you and me can go and find a, a pro that's going to do the right thing, the right project for you. So in one case, we have, um, what is really exciting is the fact that you don't have to go to, you know, a listing and call different places and, you know, ask them, you know, are you interested? You, when you go to Thumbtack, you put a request and the people that really, the pros, which are super qualified, they will, only the ones that are interested, they will, you know, contact you back with a quote, with with information to tell you I'm ready to, you know, to help you to get your, you know, your project done. And that's it. It's so, it's amazing that the fact that we are at 20, in 2017 and, you know, finding a plumber to fix your toilet or even a DJ or, you know, you're getting married, all those things are so hard. And what I really like by working at Thumbtack is that we are making that 
super easy for our customers. And we are empowering pros to, to be good at what they do, you know, to just not have to be worried about, you know, where, you know, putting flyers or, you know, putting their website and, and, and spend all that time in marketing and all these things instead of, you know, helping people with their projects and, and for them, you know, building their, their business. So that's, that's one of the things that um, is, is, is such a complex pro, uh, problem, but at the same time, it has such a good, you know, outcome for, for everyone, which is, that's one of the things that attracted me. And then also the fact that um, we're a startup, uh, startups always, you know, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard road um, because we're trying to disrupt a market that's been you know, untouched for forever. And I think that's a super challenging problem as well. And, and being part of that is, is actually super exciting. You know, it's true. I can, I, it wasn't that long ago when, you know, you needed a, a plumber and you opened up the yellow pages and, mm-hmm. and you just saw how they were able to put a number of A's in front of their name, you know, triple A plumbing, triple A, A plumbing. Uh, that, that was like how we figured things out. So tell me a kind of machine learning challenge uh, a real day-to-day one that you have to deal with, like what what data do you use to solve what problem in that as you outlined it? Yeah, so I think it's, it's, uh, there are many different things and for, for some things like automating some tasks that, you know, we can make our, you know, our team more productive. So machine learning helps you to do that, to... Um, for example, uh, making sure that the, the con- curate content, you know, we get a lot of content from uh, photos and reviews and things like that from our customers and also, you know, content from our professionals. And we want to make sure that uh, we're uh, not, we are showing all the things that are, are, are good for our, our, our customers and pros and, um, or surface information that is very relevant for them. Uh, when they're looking for to hire a professional. So there are also things like, you know, using, you know, information in our, in our marketplace to enhance the, the experience of our users uh, when they come to, Thrum, uh, they come to uh, Thumbtack and, uh, you know, be able to recommend them uh, another, you know, category, like say they put a request and for a DJ, maybe also, Maybe also they need, um, you know, if they have a party, they might want a cleaning person the next day, right? Things like that. So machine learning is, is always help there to be able to use a lot of the data that we get from, uh, from our marketplace and make our product better. All right. Well, um, we're nearing the end. I do have uh, two questions for you. Yes. One, do you enjoy um, any science fiction? And if so, like books or movies or any of that? If so, is there anything you've seen that you look at and think, yes, I could see the future unfolding that way? Yes, that could mm. really happen. Yes, I definitely like science fiction. Um, is I, I do like, like Foundation was one of the, the books. Of course. That I really like. Um, there's so many um that's that's been one that's resisted being able to be made into movies although i hear there's one in in the works for it but that's such a big project 
Yeah, and I mean, there's, I, I enjoy any type of science fiction in general. Um, I think it's, it's so interesting how humans sees, they see the future, right? Uh, um, it's so creative um, at the same time. Um, I don't particularly uh, think that um, or agree with any of those <laughs> movies and things like that, you know. There are a lot of movies in Hollywood too, uh, where you know, computers or like uh, robots they they become bad and they kill people. <laughs> I don't think that's uh, the future we'll see with machine learning. I think that we'll be able to to be to help. I think to disrupt a lot of areas. And the one that I'm more excited about is uh, medicine, because that can really change the game in humanity by being able to uh, accurately diagnose people with very few resources. Like in, there's in so many places in the world where there are no doctors and be able to take a picture or send a sample of something and having, you know, algorithms that can help doctors to, to, to get to that diagnose quickly, that's, that's going to change the way that the world is today. And so, you know, Gene Roddenberry, the creator of, creator of Star Trek, said that in the future there would be no hunger and there'll be no greed and all the children would know how to read. What do you think of that? Or a broader question, are you, because you're in, you know, a vanguard of, of mm -hmm. technology, you're you know building these technologies everybody reads about. Are you optimistic about the future? How do you think it's all going to turn out? Yeah, um, actually, it feels like uh, you know a renaissance in some way. Um, I've always after some renaissance, like some some big shift in, in in culture. There's always these new creative things happening, like you know. In the past, there were painters that you know revolutionized art by coming up with new ways of you know of being creative of painting and and so I feel that is my my view of the future is that yes, a lot of the basic needs of humans might be uh, satisfied, which is great. You know, mortality probably is going to be very low. But also is going to be the fact that the opportunity for us to to be back to you know have enough time to be creative again and and think about new ways of new things of 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 you know of living um, because we have that foundation then uh, people be able to think uh, long term be more wild about uh, new ideas and um, yeah, I think that's, that's mostly how I see it. Well, that's a great place to end it. I want to thank you so much for uh, taking your time. It was a fascinating hour. Sure, you thank a, you. And you have a good thank day. Thank you for having me. You too. Bye. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to learn more about the latest innovations in artificial intelligence and machine learning, we suggest you visit our friends at ARM at ARM.com. <laughs>